Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a LitFest highlight. Anyone participating in LitFest is invited to sign up for a three to five minute reading slot. Readers are energized by adrenaline and buzz long after they've read their words to the always warm and eager to be entertained audience. The first 2012 LitFest participant reading took place on June 8, 2012 and featured more than a dozen readers. Good evening. I'm Marie Kaufman. <laughs> you know my emails. This is my first MC gig for Lighthouse. Maybe my last. We'll see how it goes. I was trying to think of something witty to say to you before we got started, so I googled funny advice to give readers. And curiously enough, the advice, um, imagine your audience in their underwear, comes from the Brady Bunch, but technically they said it doesn't work anymore because we're in the age of Victoria's Secrets and you shouldn't tell your audience to imagine, or you shouldn't tell your readers to imagine the audience. So intermittently, I ask people to wear SpongeBob boxers <laughs> so you can imagine them. Our first reader tonight is Jim Ringel. He'll be reading from a fresh, raw, unhatched opening to a novel he's currently developing. He doesn't have a name for the novels, novel, so he said I could assign him one. Um, so here are my suggestions. Llama on the Run... <laughs> or the Big Buddha Bust. That can be taken several ways, so I don't know. The novel's about a Buddhist detective experiencing a crisis and performing his Buddhist practices. He's assigned a hit-and-run accident investigation in which a Buddhist lama is the main suspect. It's a comedy meant to convert the whole world to Buddhism, one reader at a time. And I asked everybody to give me something surprising or interesting to say about them, and he said he didn't know if this was shocking, funny, or surprising, but he's a Buddhist. <laughs> Jim Ringel. Why do I meditate? The Buddha's little statue smirks at me from its altar. I sit cross-legged, hands upon my knees, incense wafting up from next to the Buddha statue and into my gaping eyes. I feel wobbly, achy, my left knee particularly achy, and I try not to pitch over onto my side from pain, flailing, my legs twisted one inside the other. I squint at the burning incense, and my mind contemplates with clenched teeth, why do I meditate? A droplet of sweat erupts from atop my scalp. Perhaps I need not know. Is it more Buddhist to know why you meditate or not to know? <laughs> the sweat creeps saltily down the curve of my forehead, crawling like a fly crawls, slow and fat on a winter's day. The crawling itches. I swallow. I am thirsty. I need water. My sweat is water. By the time it's inched its way down to my mouth, I may have expired from thirst. I must be patient. I must be patient. Patience. Is that why I meditate? I patiently wait, and when the moment meets me, I will extend my tongue to catch that spilling droplet of sweat like a crawling fly might do. My tongue will taste its salty sting of refreshment, like how flies catch water. 
Or is that how frogs catch flies with their tongues out? I forget. The taste of salt on my tongue, it has something to do with meditation, doesn't it? Or flies? (laughs) Perhaps I meditate because I am thirsty. Because by the time the sweat reaches my tongue, I will be more than thirsty. I will be parched. My tongue will grab greedily at that droplet of sweat as it moves slowly over the curve of my upper lip, and I will drink it in, reabsorbing it, warming to its taste, swallowing it deeply so that it may reemerge at some later meditation session as sweat once again. The cycle of life. Is that why I meditate? There once was a woman whose son had died very young. She felt distraught. She ran to the Buddha, and he told her, Go back to your village. Bring me barley from the house of a neighbor where no one has died. Wanting to bring her son back to life, the woman ran from door to door begging. But at each house, they told her of an aunt or a parent or a child that had passed away inside. They told their stories sadly. It was the Buddha's way of saying, hey, lady, everyone dies. Deal with it. (laughs) Or maybe that's not the Buddha who said it. Maybe that's me. I'm a cop, or at least I freelance at being a cop. There are no full-time cops anymore. Some politician's idea of budget consciousness, they laid us all off. So now we freelance. Now we squirm like little beads of sweat for the few crime investigations they stingily dole out on an as-needed basis. And when I'm lucky enough to catch one, and it's something juicy and long-term, like a murder, and the murder's victim's family wails up to me and points at their beloved stab, shot, splattered, or decapitated body, I say, yeah, well, it's like the Buddha said, we all got to go sometime. (laughs) Bringing the Buddha into it makes me feel calm inside. Meditative. Like I control things better than I actually do. Is that why I meditate? For the control it gives? because it's what the public expects of me? The droplet of sweat tangles inside my eyebrow, slowing. I feel it separate into splintered rivulets thickening through the various paths of my thinning eyebrow hairs, damming up behind a block of dandruff, puffing up into a salt and gorge droplet of dead and dying skin. I wink. I twitch my eyebrow to dislodge the sweat drop. It streams out and seeps beneath my gaping eyelid, it seems and it seeps beneath my gaping eyelid, burning like acid. I can no longer see. I am blind to the world. Is this why I meditate? <laughs> so a thick fog of slur- a salty slurp can blind me? I twitch, trying to determine if my other eye still functions. A telephone rings. I shudder at its suddenness. It trills right there next to me, next to my meditation session. In a normal apartment, a better life, the phone would be properly placed across the room on a telephone table or credenza so I could meditate without disturbance. But I'm a cop and a freelance cop, and I haven't had a crime in several months. The crimes are just stacking up down on some downtown bureaucrat's desk waiting for the city accountant to say, all right, go ahead, release one, but watch the budget, watch the budget while I sit in the windowless squalor of a one-time civil servant's apartment where, truth be told, I find it difficult to meditate. The phone rings again. I pick it up. Thank you, Jim. Our second reader is Kara Lopez-Lee. She's reading from the afternoon sleepwalk, the genre, or she's reading the afternoon sleepwalk, the genre's flash fiction. Kara is the author of the memoir, They Only Eat Their Husbands. I tried to do that. (laughs) Twice. 
and co-author of the novel Back in the Real World. She also edits books, coaches writers, and leads Lighthouse Young Writers Workshops. This is her first time reading fiction for a Lighthouse audience. Welcome, Kara. Thank you. Can you hear me all right? Okay. The Afternoon Sleepwalk. It slithers into her home office around three in the afternoon. The snake coils around her brain and squeezes a tourniquet strangling thoughts. She's ghostwriting a book about asserting your voice. This existential joke elicits a slack-jawed yawn. Last night she suffered insomnia again and her husband's snoring inattentiveness offered no muscle relaxant. Neither big O's nor little O's. Listless hands slip from the keyboard. Her reflection blinks back from the screen and the lonely-eyed girl reminds her of one she knew long before laptops. Loose eyelids descend into dreams. So the afternoon sleepwalk isn't really her fault. She steps from empty house to tempting street. Summer rays make her squint, blinding her to intention. Heat wraps her in a tropical vacation, languid, flat-bellied, bikini-clad. Her body waits for a lover to squirt sunscreen on her back and spread it with firm, circular strokes everywhere. It's four blocks to the coffee house where college boys with dark musical eyes and careless black curls or well-read blue eyes and tangled blonde ponytails pour scalding espresso or tall, cool, spicy chai choked with ice. Because she comes often, they smile unhurried smiles and speak in husky tones about this one's bluegrass band or that one's almost finished thesis. Coffee beans grind, steam hisses, genre fiction tap, tap, taps onto Mac keyboards, sex and betrayal, sex and crime, sex and (laughs) sci-fi. She lingers inside the eyes of the dark mandolin-playing barista, certain he smells it too, this thing between them like burnt coffee on tongues and summer mud between toes. He slides a mocha into her waiting fingers. I drizzled it with caramel. I remember how you like it. (laughs) She slips a dollar into the tip jar and leans across the counter. Take a break. Now. Her lips shine, not with promise, but a guarantee. Twenty years separate them, but that's what she wants, yielding hips of experience exploding against ropey muscles of discovery. He follows her home past shuttered workday windows. As the world waits for five o'clock, two escape artists hide under soft, slippery 400-thread-count cotton and fill her bed with a thick, low moan. It's not love, but it's tender and hard in a way that love forgot. What's your name, he asks. No names. She pulls his lower lip between hers and savors a smoky hint of herbal African rooibos. This is all I want to know. 
By five o'clock, she's twisted in sweat-soaked sheets, and he's pumping more shots of caffeine for the addicted after-work rush. She rises, tosses the dregs from the bottom of her coffee into the kitchen sink, and recycles the cardboard cup and sleeve. Then she sways under a hot shower to an alternative rock song from 20 years ago and rinses away evidence of her somnambulant stroll. When she steps out, she hears a key fumbling the back door. Then her husband enters the bathroom steam cloud, twines suspicious fingers in wet hair, and asks with a dry smile, So, did you take another unplanned nap today? Thank you. Thank you, Kara. The next reader is Therese Wenham, and she's reading poetry um, from a collection she thinks she's going to call Denver Collections. She's currently taking Jake Adam York's chapbook, Intensive. And our Goats Island won honorable mention in a recent competition. And I'm assuming this is a collection of her work. Therese. Wow, this is the largest crowd I've ever read to. Um, I'm going to read um, our Goats Island first. And it's not part of the Denver Collections that I'm working on in Jake's workshop, but um, I wanted to read it anyway. Our Goat's Island. Who was he but a beast, lawnmower, maker of little round turds? He came one spring to our small island with steep slopes and a cabin looking down on the ample grasses and deciduous trees. He had no barn, no hay, no fences, This large goat roamed freely and welcomed us until the snow. The snow was which haunts the goat in the snow with no barn, no hay, and the other shore only a little ways away. November in Minnesota, he is a goat, a farm-raised beast brought to this vacationer's island by people who do not see him now in the trees, bleating as the temperature and snow come down. But what child thinks beyond what goes down around her? She does not worry beyond the fresh snow, swirling and building under her own yard's trees. At the end of summer, we abandon the beast on the little island. In the way, abandoned things disappear on islands of invisibility and denial at the same time. Poor goat. His coarse fur had smelled of sour and salty, like a goat does when he's healthy. He butted me down, deflating my lungs that first day on the island. It was spring, long, succulent grasses, long before snow. Where am I? Um... We ferried him across the green lake in our little fishing boat and watched him trot off into the trees. He had nowhere to go except the trees. That was safety, the fence of water for the goat in the summer. But come winter, 
that fence meant little. He was simply to walk away. Instead, he sat down, heavily one last time, and let the November snow cover him in the facts of winter on an unpeopled island. In spring, we returned by boat to join the island and searched for him among the silent trees. Cares replaced by winter had gone with the snow. Ribs emerged from patches of fur on the goat. It's not that he died. He had just come down by no other choice, by so little. My father buried the goat among the trees, not far from where he last lay down in the snow. I was not so little ever to forget that island. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two more poems, and these are from a collection I'm putting together called Denver Collections. And it has to do with um, institutions that collect things, as well as collections of things that are not inside. So the first one is called East Colfax Avenue. Stretched, strung out street of dives, Divided like dominoes, each door an admission. Upgraded with grandiose neon eye grabs, motor inns, motels, marts, and the capital. Drunks past trannies with transparent hatred. Lowlifes in lowriders making liaisons. Hipsters in skinny jeans and high hair. Goths who got up at four in the same getup. Puffing and passing thinking about pussy, an arrogant orange for a jacket in an Argonaut, pictures of pop art, porn shops, cupcake cafes where boisterous kids merge at midnight, drunk and merry, sushi and subs and secondhand clothing, clans of cliques populate clubs, niches of national diversity, a noble swath of humanity, from swank to swine. Hookers and head shops, high-end cuisine, ending in forgotten farms, falling down slowly, and junkyards, trailer park junkies, and giant soccer fields. All right. And the last one was written for this week's um, intensive, so I have to present it to my class tomorrow. So it's fresh. Um, It's called Butterfly Pavilion, and this is one of those institutions that collects things. The crowds snake the path of the Joan... You know what? Before I start, I actually want to tell you something. That um, if you can see, there is a back and forth to the poem which is obvious when you are reading it that there is a present and a past going on. So I just want to make you aware that there is a present and a past. The crowd snake the path of the jungle room, ducking butterflies who chase each other through the wide shiny leaves and camera snouts. An ordinary monarch flutters by, like those I kept in canning jar terrariums with their chartreuse and gold-crusted shell. Humidity sprays down from the glass ceiling. 
a pink-haired girl lures a gray, frayed crawler, tempted but slow to move from leaf to finger. I hunted like a bird through the milkweed fields, bottling striped and yellow and black caterpillars and fishnetting the flyers by the dozen. Toddlers squeal, crushing delicate insects in little fists, display them to mothers who've looked away at the wrong time and place. When the chrysalis skin cleared to orange and black, I'd set the pupa outside and wait for wings to uncrumple and black-bodied beauty to fly. A latex-gloved guide throws today's hatch high. It opens large wings but drops, flaps, and claws a woman's long blonde hair. It lies open. Newly emerged from the frayed chrysalis, I'm witness to a genesis, exact birthplace of the metaphor I know. The scales within are wet with tinct. Then jumbo white and black distractions draw my gaze up as they lop like puppies in a line. Thank you. Thank you. Our next reader is Jeanette Matusiak. The name of the work she's reading is a chapter entitled Made to Wear, which is from an untitled memoir. And Jeanette would like you to know that she's first-generation Polish-American and has had her picture appear on the front page of Yemen Today. When I was 20, my friend worked for an edgy art gallery and invited a small group of us to their annual fundraiser, the Erotic Ball. We were poor college students, but we went for the title alone. My costume, given the theme, would have to have bang. I knew I didn't want to show up in some already-made, trite French maid's outfit, and I doubted anything in my cardigan-heavy closet would suffice either. Going full tilt only heightened my conviction to go, because when would I ever go to another erotic ball? Probably never. (laughs) This is the question I always ask of myself. Will I get the chance again? I almost always answer no. Early in the evening on the night of the party, I ran into some unexpected sewing problems. I was at my parents' house, and I knew I had to implore the master seamstress skills of my aunt, or Chacha, as she's called in Polish. My parents and Chacha knew I was going to a costume party, but I had conveniently kept the erotic ball title out of the conversation. (laughs) The framed pictures of the Pope's outstretched hand in both the kitchen and living room reminded me that I was no longer in my friend's dorm room, where I conceived the idea. Given the hours I had left to finish my costume, I had to reveal my masterpiece. I laid out my black bodysuit and leggings. I had strategically sewn sugared gumdrops into a spiral around the the right breast with the outer spiral aligning the gumdrops into a single file down the torso leading to a large red and white old-fashioned swirled disc lollipop. It would act as my carefully placed fig leaf. I took out two sugared pink grapefruit wedges I bought at Mrs. Nelson's candy store earlier in the day 
and placed them on the left side of the bodysuit. Put together, they were the size of a silver dollar. I shook, up, I shook out the gumdrop from the box and picked over the green and yellow ones in favor for the reddish-looking one. I gently placed it on top of the grapefruit wedges. My mother was amused with my design, laughed, and then carried on with her housework. I showed Chacha how hard it was to get the needle through two levels of gumminess. I rattled off that I thought of glue, but I couldn't cut corners where sugar and fabric were involved because I knew it would fall apart as I moved. Chacha adjusted her Elton John glasses that were perched low on her nose. My words meant no other words. I thought she might make the sign of the cross or douse me with holy water, but she stood in silence as she stared and stared at the costume. Finally, she asked in her thick Polish accent, why you wait till last minute? Her experienced sewing hands finished my work. I laughed when, with the final stitch, she did what I've seen her do a million times. She took the thread into her mouth and broke it free from the needle with a little bite and spit. I can, no offer, I can offer no explanation as to why my mother and her sister did not choke me with their large pierogi-making hands after seeing my creative overture, but I think they saw something I couldn't know then. I was reveling in my youth. When I met up with my friends for the ball and took off my coat, someone said, holy shit, you don't mess around. <laughs> I try not to. I couldn't explain the nervous buzz I felt in my heart. At the time, I would have related it to being self-conscious, maybe even wanting too much for a boy to want me. Twenty years later, I still know this nervous buzz in my heart, and I can name it now. It's the feeling that I'm running out of time, that I want to be sure I can live out my heart's desires. Death is certain, but maybe something worse will find me first, like my dad's body-crippling illness that has shown him no mercy. His resolve is what makes me want to outrun death for as long as I can. And by run, I actually mean to drilling deep like a tree root, find a place to feel connected and alive. Every detail I imagined was in place for my costume, including the accessories. A candy necklace and bracelets adorned my neck and wrists. I wore a pacifier-like cherry-flavored diamond candy ring. Best of all, my cleavage hosted a spray of red licorice that reminded me of breadsticks that people are too full for, but eat anyway. <laughs> I was a temple of confection, a youthful promise, a fleeting taste of sugar. Jeanette, I want to know what happened at the party. <laughs> you can tell me later. Our next reader is Heather Caliendo, and she'll be reading from her novel, Buried in Content, which is commercial women's fiction. Heather loosely based the characters and circumstances in her novel from her experience as a newspaper reporter. The portion she is reading tonight is pretty darn similar to what actually happened to her. It's almost considered nonfiction, but she says the key word is almost. Hello. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> um, uh, to give you a bit of a background, um, the protagonist, Stephanie Cox, she just got hired for 
Her first professional job is a reporter for a statewide business publication. Naturally, her first day has gone terrible. Her bureau chief, who's been hard on her all day, finally gives her a reporting assignment. All Stephanie knows about her source, Yuki Ano, is that he owns a billboard advertisement company called Signs RS. <coughs> Excuse me, I've been a little bit under the weather, so sorry, I sound like a frog. Um, <clears throat> and it's a comedy, so feel free to laugh or cough or something. So, okay. Out of the corner of my eye, I see someone walk into the store. I glance up to see if it's a photographer, and I see a skinny Asian man wearing dirty-looking cargo pants, a faded gray hoodie, and gloves that have the fingers cut off. Before I can say anything, the guy asks, Are you Miss Cox? I'm Yuki Ano. This is my source? He looks really sloppy. I guess since he's the owner of his company, he can wear what he wants, but his choice of dress is pretty unappealing. Uh, yes, I am. Nice to meet you, Mr. Ono, I say without making a move. I'm still a little put off by his outfit. Please, have a seat, he says, as he sits down on a bench in the room. I walk over and sit next to Ono and mistakenly get a whiff of smell that reminds me of the time my college roommate and I forgot to take the trash out for a month. Not a smell I ever wanted to revisit. I get a closer look at him, and one of his eyes appears to be squinting as if it's permanently shut. When he smiles, he reveals yellow-stained teeth with a gold cap on one of them. I notice the tennis shoes have caked on dirt. He doesn't look anything like an owner of a company. He looks homeless. I then realize we've been sitting here in silence for a couple minutes while Anno has just been staring at me. I just need to ignore his rather disgusting smell and clothes and get this interview over with. So, Mr. Anno, tell me about your business. You run this billboard advertisement company, Signs R Us? Yes, I do. Did you see my bike out front? The one with the handwritten sign that says something about bug killers, I asked. Yes, bug killers is an extermination company in town. They pay me $2 a month to attach that poster on my bike. I ride around Tulsa spreading the word. That is advertising. In your face, he yells. (laughs) I jump about a foot in the air. What the hell is his problem? As I try to calm my nerves and figure out what Anna was talking about, a portly man approaches us wearing a name tag that reads, Signs are us. Can I help you, he asks. I wait for Anno to speak until the obvious hits me. Anno isn't the owner of Signs R Us. I think what he actually owns are those bullshit handwritten signs on the bike outside. I don't know why he said Signs R Us is his business. I'm so confused. Suddenly, a hippie-looking guy walks into the store with brown hair down to his shoulders and a camera slung around his arm. He looks to be in his early 40s and is holding a coffee mug bearing the words, Love's Travel Mug. Everyone, Jack Searcy, business journal, here for a photo, he says as he looks around. The signs RS man begins to sweat and starts shrieking, no photos, we are not associated with this man, kindly leave. I am in shock. I don't make a move, and for some reason, neither does Ano. I don't know what to do. Why can't I be here? I have the same amount of rights as you, motherfucker, Ano starts yelling. This is my motherfucking house, bitch. Oh my god, this guy's insane. I hope he doesn't have a gun. The signs are us, man. Quickly runs and grabs a phone on the other side of the room. Dialing 911, I hope. I hear Jack start laughing and he says, Hey man, this is private property. It's cool. We can just go outside. After huffing and puffing for a few beats, Ono takes in a deep breath, closes his eyes and says, Ah, yes, Mr. Cersei. Outside will be better to get a photo with my custom-made signs. 
Wait, what? This dude goes from screaming to everything being all okay? This homeless man must be bipolar or something, and I'm trying to interview him for a business publication. Is this really happening? I try to gather my thoughts. I can't write a business story about this guy. I'll be laughed at for taking his business seriously. The city won't have any respect for my stories, and I'm fairly certain David didn't hire me to write bullshit articles. Now, if I had the healthy at a city newspaper writing a story about bipolar homeless people, Anna would be the perfect source. <laughs> Once we walk outside, I think everything has calmed down until Anna starts yelling again. When I become mayor of the city, I will own this place, bitch. I will hold all my press conferences here and then light this place on fire just to make a fucking statement. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you want to you see this place burn? He picks up a rock and throws it at the side of the building. Holy shit. Thank you, Heather. Our next reader is Christy Bailey. She exclusively writes creative nonfiction and will be reading from her memoir in progress, Pen Waylo Girl. She says, when I was finally given a voice by being drafted by Harrison to read from my book at Lighthouse, I lost my voice, but I refused to let an untimely case of laryngitis rob me of my platform. With the help of a couple hot toddies, a few chugs from the whiskey bottle, and a lot of positive energy from the crowd, I was good to go. And she says, I'm hoping that this time things will go smoother. Christy Bailey. Thank you. Um, so, um, I've workshopped with a couple of you, and you know that I, some of you know that I've been trying to figure out where my book starts. So, I'm working on this memoir, and this is the latest audition for the start of my book. Um, so, it begins with the epigraph Life Begins at the End of Your Comfort Zone by Neil Donald Walsh. And this chapter is called El Penuelo. Sitting on a stool in the glare of a high-powered fluorescent bulb, I smooth the tails of my headscarf, tug on the cotton fabric spanning my forehead, nudge the double knot at the nape of my neck. Only when I'm sure I've covered every hairless spot on my scalp do I fold my hands across my lap and flash a smile. Lista, ready. The man with thick, wavy hair lifts his head. He takes in my dangling sandaled feet, my breathable baggy khakis, my sleeveless layering tee. As his eyes fix on my white bandana with rust and navy markings, the photographer's nose twitches. I shift my weight. Had I known we'd be posing for resident ID photos today, I would have set aside a more flattering outfit, the burgundy knit dress I wore the first day of Peace Corps training in Miami, or the fuchsia button-down I chose for last night's Bienvenidos Fiesta with our Honduran host families. Starting with my first driver's permit nearly 20 years ago, I've always put thought into my appearance for identification photos, a double coat of mascara to widen my eyes, a quick hair check in the rearview mirror before entering the DMV. But I said goodbye to my wig when I said hello to third world adventure. So I have no hair to fluff or flatten, no mirror, no ready makeup supply, 
not even the luxury of advance notice. So I pose in shapeless hiking attire, raw and unembellished, for an ID card that is somehow supposed to represent who I am in this new land, now and for the next two years. The late July air is thick and wet with the humidity of an impending storm. I swipe my hand across my damp forehead, lick the organic, lick off the organic lip balm made of beeswax and natural oils. The minty flavor bites more than soothes, but I run my tongue across the salve over and over again, a childhood habit I've never been able to break. The photographer continues his scrutiny from a dark corner. The fiercer his stare, the more I avoid eye contact. I search the room for any sign of comfort, but find only obstructions to it. Dark curtains blocking natural light. Undecipherable Spanish sayings on wall posters. The photographer hurls a string of harsh syllables at me. Quiero ser pemuelo, he he says. He talks so fast, not like my patient host mother, who enunciated every word while walking me through her hillside home yesterday. <laughs> Repita? I ask, as though I once understood this command, and hearing it a second time will trigger my recall. My eyes squint into the light. My round irises morph into slits. El panuelo, he says, louder this time and slower. Quitaselo. My mouth gapes open as I attempt a translation. Pan, as in bread? Kitar, as in stop? Stop the bread, fatty? <laughs> I stifle a laugh. Gorda, I do know, and he did not say Gorda. <laughs> Though from what I've read, a stocky woman like me can expect to hear Gorda in the unlikeliest of places. No entiendo, I concede. I have no idea what you're saying, buddy. He taps his head and beat with the unfamiliar words, El panuelo, quitaselo. We lock eyes, my soft baby blues and his hard black stones. I halt all movement to concentrate on his message. Still, my rocking, bobbing, fidgeting, grooming, breathing. I've got wood for a brain, or a stain on my bandana. Birch it? My hand flits to the knotted scarf. He raises a caterpillar eyebrow and nods. I feel a volcanic explosion inside me, streams of lava creeping through my body, the burn of comprehension in my head, my heart, my belly. The headscarf. He wants me to remove it. Yo soy, um, yo tengo. I start to explain, but I have no words to fill in the blanks. I am what? I have what? For eight years, I've been unable to talk about the autoimmune disease that causes my body to fight off my hair, even with many of my friends. Under the scarf, a couple of ash-blown tufts cling to my scalp. Not hair, yet not quite bald either. But Christy with the patchy hair isn't someone people know. She's been hiding under a human hair wig, unwilling to display the hair loss, unable to confess it, as if losing one's hair is an offense, something for which she is responsible, the result of something she either did or failed to do, and a great source of shame. Quita, say 
Again, my eyes scan the room, but this time I don't see curtains or posters or even the glowering photographer. I see the fancy hair on a wig stand in my parents' guest room. I've just let go of the wig. Must I surrender the scarf too? I purse my lips together and blink back tears, determined to maintain my composure. But my body betrays me. My hands tremble. My eyes well. My face breaks out in hives. I thought I was ready to bear myself. I thought that once I was far from everyone and everything I've ever known, I would automatically open up. I thought I could embrace Christy with the patchy hair. I was wrong. I do not untie the scarf. No puedo, I say. No puedo, no puedo, no puedo. I can't. Thank you, Christy. Our next reader this evening is Leah Woodall, and she's reading from a creative nonfiction piece called Ignoble, and it's for all of the daughters who have difficult mothers and then some. I'm going to keep my comments to myself about my mom. Can you hear me? Um, this was just birthed a couple hours ago. Uh, ignoble. I'm making a copy of a Mary Oliver poem on my home printer when the word ignoble swims by on my computer screen. Not honorable in character or purpose, it screams at me before disappearing. The poem is the second of two I've copied, intending to choose one to tape to the inside of a blank note card. On the cover of the card is a painting by Mary Cassatt, entitled Mother and Child. I found it in my stash of cards for all occasions. Have been saving it for many years, waiting for the right moment, and here it is, when I need it most. It portrays a young woman with dark hair swept up into a whimsical bun on top her head, weighing it down ever so slightly. She's sitting on a sofa in front of a window, her eyes cast upon her hand sewing, delicate stitches on a delicate cloth square that she holds between delicate hands near her breasts. A little girl kneels in front of her, elbows resting in her lap as if she is praying. Childish auburn wisps of hair clash with her rose-tinned cheeks. Her eyes look out seem older than she appears, intent on something beyond the moment passing in the afternoon light, something she can't have. Mother's Day 2012 is looming, and I have to post my card this afternoon if there's any hope for a timely arrival in Arizona. Poetry has been a safe way for me to communicate with my mom since Dad died the year before. During 2010 and 11, my sister and I left our homes in Vegas and Denver for months or weeks, respectively, so Dad would give up driving. Mom didn't drive, and the burden couldn't fall on our youngest brother, who'd been living in that house for the last five years, sick with a debilitating disease. We chauffeured that gregarious and kind 93-year-old man to Albertson's for groceries and to visit Adrian, the housebound friend, and to the local college bars and pizza joints where he would sing his original cowboy songs on open mic nights. Sunday was Chucky Babies, Tuesday was Rula Bulas, and Thursday was Final Round. I guess we did that job too well. Mom and our youngest brother had really expected us to talk Dad out of everything he had left to do in life. 
When Dad was getting close to leaving us, my sister and I left, let our estranged middle brother know Dad was in the hospital against Mom's specific instructions not to. He'd been away for the, from the family for 20 years. He'd surfaced on the Internet a few years back, but Mom didn't want Dad to know and impulsively contact him, stir up the turmoil that had led to the estrangement in the first place. We all knew that our middle brother lived five miles from their house, had a good job, was married, and owned his own house. That counts for a lot, she said to us. Leave it alone. And each morning, Dad continued to do what he'd done for the last 20 years, read the Arizona Republic cover to cover, and check to see if his middle son's name was listed in the obituaries. My sister got blamed for contacting our middle brother even though we both were responsible. He came to the hospital that morning. Dad was still lucid enough to understand him when he said, I'm sorry, and I love you, Pops, and introduced his wife. After the funeral, when my sister and I were packing up to leave town, Mom asked her for the house key back. The first poem I consider is called A Bitterness. I believe you did not have a happy life. I believe you were cheated. I believe your best friends were loneliness and misery. I believe your busiest enemies were anger and depression. I believe joy was a game you could never play without stumbling. I believe comfort, though you craved it, was forever a stranger. I believe music had to be melancholy or not at all. I believe no trinket, no precious metal shone so bright as your bitterness. I believe you lay down at last in your coffin, none the wiser and unassuaged, oh, cold and dreamless under the world, amoral, reckless, peaceful flowers on the hillsides. Every enraged bone in my body wants me to end my relationship with my mom in a Mother's Day card with this poem. Instead, I choose a poem called Lingering in Happiness. After rain, after many days without rain, it stays cool, private, and cleansed under the trees, and the dampness there, married now to gravity, falls branch to branch, leaf to leaf, down to the ground, where it will disappear, but not, of course, vanish, except to our eyes. The roots of the oaks will have their share, and the white threads, the grasses, and the cushion of moss, a few drops round as pearls will enter the mole's tunnel. And soon, so many small stones buried for a thousand years will feel themselves being touched. In my own words, I write, Dear Mom, we've had a good deal of rain the last couple days, a spectacular display of lightning on Saturday night. Some of the lily stalks along our fence doubled in height. Overnight, it seems, promises of big blossoms, perhaps. Rebecca came home in April with wedding magazines, and I got excited thinking about when that might happen and, and what it meant. She was supposed to be born on Mother's Day, and I remember how upset I was that she was late and I wasn't yet a mother that year, 1988. I hope you like the two bracelets I've enclosed. One says, believe. The other says, miracles. The dark stone is garnet, your gemstone. I have a similar bracelet that I wear with amethyst stones. It says abundance, abundant love, abundant rain, enough to linger in happiness. Leah. Thank you, Leah. 
Our next reader is Robin Pease. She's reading an excerpt from her memoir. The working title is Walk on Water. And she couldn't think of anything funny to tell me, but she said we could ask Christy Bailey if we wanted to know. (laughs) Robin. Um, I suppose I should say this took place about 15, a little more than 15 years ago. And um, the, fa- the kidney my father had given me when I was 13 was failing, and I had decided not to do anything about it. The farrier tells me I look sick, although he avoids actually using the word sick. I don't listen to anyone else worrying out loud over me, but if this man, whose mere presence routinely unhinges me, showed genuine concern, I might pay attention. You look like you're about to blow away. Did you quit eating or what? He takes a hot shoe out of the forge with tongs. Bear's straw-colored ears flick the slightest bit backwards when Dodd presses burning steel to his hoof. But otherwise, my horse doesn't seem to mind caustic smoke rising around him. Maybe on some level, he's aware the new shoes he gets every six weeks are pricey. More likely, he trusts Dodd's hands. I'm on a diet, I say, watching Dodd from my perch on a tack trunk. He works the shoe around his anvil, (laughs) tapping here and there with a hammer according to hair-splitting measurements he's memorized. What's on the menu? He fixes cryptic brown eyes on me, and I'm lost, that fast, stunned and stupid. He gives up an answer and takes the shoe back for another fitting. My dog scoots away with a choice bit of hoof trimming. Bear whips his long tail at a fly and just misses Dodd's head. Dodd's hair is ash-colored with diamond-studded streaks, like my horse's tail. On paper, Bear is a red roan Appaloosa, though only the few spots on his butt approximate the color red. Those spots are what make him a misfit, not the usual privileged bay or chestnut whose owners demand Dodd's expertise. Most of Dodd's clients are women and girls who flash either fat rings or flourish slender naked fingers his way, and I imagine both can bait him. With so many to pick from, I think he's only being practical if he chooses women with rich pedigrees. There is one in serious pursuit now. He said she's sweet on him. He uses those words, a starry-eyed phrase that tells me this rich girl is different. I look at my papery fingernails, and my gaze falls to my worn-out, manure-caked paddock boots. I recall the only money I recently made came from waitressing. But I haven't worked in a while, and my father foots the bill for most everything I believe Bear needs. We don't exactly talk about why he does this. I have no doubt my dad would stand between me and an army demanding my blood if I had any blood left to give. That I'm wasting away is a truth not lost on anyone who knows me well. But my father knows a little something about how horses bind me to life and he remembers too much about the capricious nature of death. Because his mother was gone in an instant, he does what he can to hold on to me. This is something I know without being told. I've always known. Sparks fly from the welder Dodd uses. When he takes off his safety goggles and wipes his forehead on the short sleeve of his mostly white t-shirt, it occurs to me that he is neither colorblind or ignorant. 
He shows up to shoe my spotted horse every six weeks. Whether Bear is living in want and ease at a ritzy show facility or happy being a regular horse here at my friend's barn. Maybe he comes because Bear is nothing short of brilliant over jumps. Maybe he remembers when I moved back from Chicago a few years ago, feeling defeated and sick, and he needed somebody to talk to because his marriage had broken and he felt like a ghost haunted by alcohol. Sometimes I was a somebody who sat and listened, and it didn't make any difference whether it was angst-ridden lust or politeness keeping me quiet. I decide that particular memory will only hold him for so long, and I work up my withered language. I'm on a health food diet. I drink a lot of carrot juice, I say, because it's supposed to be good for you. He puts a hand on Bear's shoulder and looks directly at me again. He's my age, or maybe he has a couple of years on my 35, almost 36. He has rotten teeth from chewing tobacco, but his smile more than makes up for that flaw. His grin is something ripe, potent. It's fertile ground for female imagination. (laughs) I am not so far gone that I'm immune to weak knees, but more than that, his smile shines a little light in a darkness I have been struggling for all I'm worth to hold back. I'm not sure exactly what it is carrot juice is supposed to do, but you're not a very good advertisement. (laughs) (laughs) A smile that's loose across my face, even though he's just opined that my appearance is less than lovely. I see Vicky through the open barn doors behind Dodd's truck. She's coaxing her little girl down the wood stairs from the kitchen. She doesn't have any problem holding her end of a conversation with Dodd, especially one peppered with raunchy jokes. My mind flies backward past me to my father and then to his mother, who was dead at 38. I am funny. I have a killer sarcastic wit that only certain people ever witness. My long-gone grandmother was the same, often quiet but a riot inside. I actually have some kind of ache to hear Dodd say more. I only want his voice. It's more than I've ever thought I could have. I don't know why I hold him to such lofty heights. I've had my share of good men and bad boys who wanted more from me than what I had to say. But he feels like the last, the last boy I can't have. It's a familiar feeling. I'm hurting for the life I didn't have. Thank you, Robin. Our next reader is Denise Turner. Denise is working on two memoirs. The first, Blessed, is about growing up in a weird religious home with demons and curses. Her second memoir, Psyched, is about her various stays in psych wards after having grown up in weird religious home (laughs) with demons and curses. She will read a short scene from her first book, Blessed. Okay, so this is from the first chapter of Blessed, and um, it's the 1970s, and my mother has just started dating a born-again Christian, and she's decided to invite him over for dinner so we can get to know each other a little bit better. Don't even notice. Okay. (laughs) 
And, but while she was in the kitchen finishing making dinner, I tried my best to entertain this guy, and he was, like, not interested. He was dead silent. Things got more interesting at dinner, primarily because Dean came to life and started talking. First, we learned about Nixon and how Dean knew he was a crook long before anyone else did. He had a better feeling about Ford, but he was pretty sure that guy was a crook, too. Really, my mother said, how do you know? I just got a feeling. He scooped a hunk of potato in his mouth and added, it's in the good book. Everything's in there. We're living in the last days, don't you know that? Well, my mother and I didn't know that. We'd never read the Bible. We tried, you know, opening up on lazy Sunday mornings to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But it got complicated after that, and we put it down. (laughs) We decided to let the experts read it, because they're used to studying ancient manuscripts. But Dean, he'd read the Bible cover to cover and deciphered all of its complexities. He said we were living in what was called the end of times. And he took great care to list the signs. There will be wars and rumors of wars, he said. His voice became deeper, stretching out the first wars and the second wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But do not be alarmed. My mother wanted to know <coughs> My mother wanted to know why we shouldn't be alarmed and Dean said <laughs> Dean said he'd get to that in a minute but first he had to explain the prophecies wars and rumors of wars this was evidenced by that Vietnam deal There would also be there would also be earthquakes and famines like the one in Africa false prophets trials and tribulations rebellion among the youth What about those cotton-picking, God-forsaken hippies? (laughs) Filthy, getting high on dope. It was out-and-out rebellion, a sign of the times. But how do you know these things, my mother asked, leaning forward in her chair, her eyes wide and twinkly. Dean seemed to like her waiting, her eagerness, her smile. So he lingered a few extra beats before responding. You just got to know how to interpret the scriptures. He pointed to the salt. My mother passed it to him. And after giving his steak a quick shower, he said, It's all in the book of Revelations. The judgment day, the apocalypse. But do not be alarmed, he continued, that rhythm rising again. For those who are in Christ Jesus have no need of fear. My mother remarked that it would be nice to live without fear. She had read something in the paper the other day that scared the daylights out of her. (laughs) Dean... Dean nodded. He said, he said it, was, it was obvious that we lived in fear because of our spiritual ignorance. He said it showed in everything about us. The way that we lived, the way that we spoke, the fact that we didn't <clears throat> pray before meals. Spiritual ignorance was as confusing to me as being born again. But Dean didn't elaborate, and my mother didn't ask. She just stared down into her plate. A silence engulfed us then, permeating everything, sucking the flavor out of the food. Soon I was chewing out of boredom, out of frustration, (laughs) mangling mangling the tough, flavorless steak in my mouth because there was nothing else I could do. And then the silence ended. Look at that, Dean told my mother. She chews with her mouth open. Do you know she chews with her mouth open? My mother looked at me. Suddenly both of them were staring at me with such intensity that I... Stop chewing and just sat there motionless with bits of half meat chewed meat in my cheeks. And look at the way she holds her fork. 
So the three of us looked at my fork. <laughs> Next, we examined my posture because I was not sitting right in my chair. What did my mother think about that? Honey, sit up, she urged. Use your napkin and chew with your mouth closed. My eyes watered up then more from anger than anything else, and instead of falling outward, the tears seemed to fall inward, sliding down the back of my throat and mingling with half-masticated steak in my mouth, which I tried to swallow but couldn't, so I chomped. I did it loudly and deliberately, chomp, 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 (laughs) teeth hammering to the point of pain, cheeks flushing hot with rage, or was it humiliation? Because even as I did this, I had the vague notion that it was self-defeating. Dean sat watching my open mouth grinding with a smile resting on his lips, bemused that I was proving my poor table manners without him saying another word. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next up is Rudy Molina. Rudy is reading... Oh, he's got a fan club. Rudy is reading an excerpt from No One Was Around, a short story. Rudy has a small contingent of relatives who believe his short stories are memoir. (laughs) One aunt insists that writing helps him unblock memories from his past. This same aunt claims to be a incarnation of, or in a previous life, she was an incarnation of uh, Cleopatra. <laughs> Got kind of a nutty family. <laughs> By the way, thank you for sticking around for the second half. I, um, seems like you're all here. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, from the short story. My protagonist is Jesus, and he's 10 years old. Jesus tried every day to keep the rules in his head don't leave the yard. Don't touch matches and stay out of their bedroom. Outside in his backyard, he scrambled up an empty doghouse, complete with angled roof and crumbling shingles. It snuggled against, up against his daddy's workshed. Sarge, the cocker spaniel, had died of a stroke in July. In its final days, the pet, unbalanced and skittering around sideways, took all his daddy's attention, and his father was sad all over again. Jesus had cried, but he didn't miss the smelly, unpredictable dog on a chain. Standing on the peak of the doghouse, he lifted a leg like mounting a horse and shimmied onto the slanted shed roof. Jesus hooded his eyes with both hands, and from his lofty vantage point, cauliflower treetops cushioned his neighborhood, his world composed of small square houses surrounded by dirt yards. Brick chimneys and elaborate makeshift TV antennas reached to the sky. He saw almost all the way to the bank and hotel that defined Pueblo, Colorado in 1961. Jesus picked up a pretend rifle, a long straight branch with a knot perfectly placed where a cock and trigger might be on a real gun. Lying on his stomach behind the ridge of the roof, he shot heathen Iroquois and villainous outlaws, shouting, with each shot. That sounded pretty good, didn't it? <laughs> when the savages were in retreat, Jesus stood to shoot them down. 
Enacting a rifle recoil too hard, he lost his balance and rolled backwards. In that instance of tumble, he felt the wooden shingles along his spine and the edge of the roof karate chopping the back of his neck. Over the past few months, he had wondered what it would feel like to die, and now he would know. But that fate was not to be. The torque of his fall spun him around onto his back along the lower roof of the doghouse, and like a gymnast, he landed on the ground on trembling feet. Fuck! Escaped his lips. And he looked around quickly to see if anyone might have heard, but of course, no one was around. A grumbling in his stomach announced lunchtime, and he ran to the kitchen. He made a bologna burrito with one of his mama's tortillas, carefully removing the red plastic wrap that ringed the meat, and he rolled it up like a fat cigar. He didn't like being there alone with his dead brother's Nathan's high chair still in the corner. Every time he saw it, a flood of memories soaked his mind. His mama had screamed when she found Nathan in the crib that morning, and then his daddy had pushed her aside and blew air into Nathan's dead mouth. At the funeral, the tiny casket was unopened, and when the priest said, Nathan Artemio Garcia is in a better place, his mama had slumped unconscious in the pews with aunties and uncles gathered around, fanning her face and patting her cheeks. Then, the long summer months when she was barely there, when Jesus hung the wash on the clothesline that she had forgotten to take out of the washing machine, had turned off the pot of boiling spaghetti sauce that had begun to burn, and bathed himself without being told. With a mouthful of tortilla, Jesus had an idea. He would have a nice dinner with dessert ready for his mama and daddy when they got home from their jobs. Jesus had not a single coin to his name. Opening their bedroom door, just wide enough for him to squeeze through, a mixture of scents tickled his nose, the fragrance of his mama's perfume and baby powder. Turning on the ceiling light caused a dull glow that accentuated shadows. The bed was made up military style with corners tucked in without ripples on the blanket. Nathan's crib with a plastic mattress and wood bar sides still dominated a corner. The surface of their dresser had a plate glass cover. Doilies crocheted by his mama were pressed beneath. Above, her jewelry case sparsely filled with earrings, costume jewelry, and a necklace. A cluster of items filled one corner nail clippers, a box of Dr. Scholl's bunion bunion pads, an eyelash curler, matchbooks, a stick of mascara, and a pack of his mama's Newport cigarettes. Jesus couldn't resist winding her music box. He lifted the lid and sang along with the melody, I love Paris in the springtime. Thank you, Rudy. Our next reader is Lori Sleeper. She's reading the opening of her short story, Alphabet Book of Love, letters A through E. And her something interesting is that several times she has gotten a perfect score on the advanced level of the We Fit Plus marching band game. 
and she has promised that this evening she's not going to read anything to make me cry. If she does, she's going to give a presentation of that we marching band game. You know. So um, the one thing you need to know from the beginning is that this is written from the point of view of a man. And here we go. The Alphabet Book of Love. A is for accident. Her name was Sarah, just like my wife's, but I didn't know her name at first. I was new to the company and hadn't met many people. It was my second Friday, and my second time ending work at 4 p.m. and heading over to the TGIFs across the street. I didn't know then how many times I'd end up over there, lunch, happy hour, midday escapes, but it seemed exciting and colorful, this company with all these young people, like me, who partied together on a Friday afternoon. What was wrong with that? After more than a couple of beers that second Friday, I ended up telling a story about the time my wife and I went to the Great Sand Dunes, and she ended up falling flat on her face as she tried to jump down a steep dune. It doesn't sound funny now that she fell on her face, that I would tell that story, but at the time, it sounded funny, and the people around me laughed. And I thought, this job is going to be great. <laughs> a woman, her, told me how her family used to camp at the sand dunes when she was young. And she asked if I had slept outside and watched the stars. It seemed so nice, the idea of lying outside, watching the stars, lying next to when she clinked her gin and tonic against my beer mug and said, what's your name? Garrett, I replied, and you're Sarah. That's my wife's name, Sarah. She winked at me and said, so when are we getting married? <laughs> B is for broken. When Sarah and I married, she didn't care about all those details women are supposed to obsess about when planning a wedding, and I loved her for that. It wasn't that she didn't care about the wedding. She just didn't worry about whether she'd invited the right people or chosen the right wedding dress or picked the right food for the reception or anything. She just made her decision and moved on. And they were all good decisions because it was the most magical night of my life. At least it felt that way. I remember watching her after the ceremony, greeting each guest as if they were the only person she was focused on. She was so beautiful, so natural as she moved through the evening her smile. When she wasn't right beside me, I was watching her. Then I saw her laugh and I panicked. I didn't have what she had. I didn't have that spark, that confidence. I wanted to run away. But she saw me and walked towards me, completely open, and the feeling disappeared. What I realized I had was her. C is for cold. If there had been anything recognizable about her so that I could see her and the damage together, I would not have felt so numb. But there was nothing recognizable about her, about her face. The dried blood, the grossly exaggerated stitches meant first to save her life, to be later revised by a plastic surgeon. The swelling, the bandaging that swaddled her head, covering the right eye she would later lose the top of her scalp completely shaved, the torn lip, which would need reconstruction. 
It took a week until they felt it was safe to bring her out of the coma. C is also for coma and cry. D is for dog. I was happier to see our dog doodle than he was to see me, and that was saying a lot. I got down on the floor with him as he wiggled and danced, and I let him lick my face as much as he wanted. Here was something normal. Here was our dog, when the entire day had not been normal, and nothing would ever be normal again. Doodle sniffed at the bandages on my arm, the only thing broken in my body besides my trust in the world. My arm, broken by Sarah's body, slamming into mine, the truck thrusting itself halfway into the cab of our car. As I scratched Doodle's ears and patted his head, I thought, thank God the dog wasn't in the car. Then I hated myself. E is for evening. I still had to work while Sarah was in the hospital, so I visited her after work. The dusk lingered late into the evening. Summer was getting close. Sometimes Debbie, Sarah's mom, would be there. At first, Sarah wasn't awake at all, and then she would be sort of awake but not alert. At times, she spoke to us, but her words were slurred and disjointed. The doctor said this was normal for a traumatic brain injury. We would have to wait to find out the extent of the damage. One evening, I thought Sarah was sleeping, so I read a magazine by the window, sometimes looking down at the parking lot, watching the people who were free to come and go. What are you doing here? She said loudly, clearly. Her one good eye glared at me. Sarah! I thought she had instantly become her old self again. I rushed toward the bed, reaching out to hug her, but she pulled back. Who are you? She said. It's me, Garrett. I didn't know what else to say. Her mangled face almost unrecognizable. It was like I didn't know her. Sarah frowned, glancing at me, and then away. Oh, she said, closing her one unbandaged eye. Oh, Garrett. After a long pause, her eyes still closed, she said, I must have been dreaming. Thank you. Lori, you better get warmed up back there. I'm feeling very emotional. Get that marching going. Every time. Okay, our next reader is Jim Moran. Jim is reading from his memoir entitled Until Proven Innocent. After many years of writing fiction, this is his first attempt at memoir. He found that the most difficult parts of creating it was the fact that the main character often seemed to have a mind of his own. Jim. This is very scary, but I'll start out anyway. This is the uh, opening to my memoir. It's better to be lucky than good, my father who is mostly neither, often said. It was a maxim imparted to me as a young boy that I did not comprehend at the time. Much later, as a nominal adult, I came to understand all too well what he meant. On August 23, 2007, believing in my basic decency, but lacking fortune's favor, I made the biggest mistake of my life and began a fall from which I thought I'd never recover. At noon on that day, I left my office at the Federal District Court in Washington and headed to a pharmacy in 
Chinatown to pick up an unauthorized prescription of Vicodin. I had ordered it by phone the night before using my dentist's DEA number. I eagerly anticipated the comfortable buzz of a painkiller, elevating a depressive mood and smoothing the jagged edges of anxiety. I never read this to anybody before. <laughs> the, the neighborhood was congested with lunchtime traffic. The area around 7th and 8th Streets, Northwest, consisted of a few inexpensive Chinese restaurants surrounded by chain stores, fast food joints, and street people of all sorts. Peddlers sold clothing, CDs, belts, watches, T-shirts. Students with bullhorns and placards decried the war in Iraq and passed out leaflets to commuters emerging from the metro station. The sidewalks were covered by handouts, food wrappers, and stains you did not want to explore. <laughs> One would have never guessed that this was mere blocks from the majesty of the National Mall. In the four years I had lived in Washington, there had been efforts to revitalize the area with more upscale stores, Benetton, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Taylor Loft. But the essential seediness could not be disguised. It was a dirty, vaguely menacing area with too many idle, young black men and homeless aggress aggressively cadging change. A man in an armory jacket and camouflage fatigues held open the door of the CVS pharmacy, asking for personal alms, saying, God bless you to the customers, including myself, coming and going from the store. Inside, as always seemed to be the case, the pharmacy was teeming with people. A serpentine line pressed against the front entrance, and I had to push through the traffic to get to the back of the store. The pharmacy was a rather cavernous place, the rows seeming to narrow and tighten as you moved further inside. As I progressed closer to the prescription counter, I began to feel anxious. Even then, I knew that what I was doing was wrong, dangerous, and stupid. But I easily suppressed these thoughts while casting a glance at the large ceiling funhouse mirror where I viewed my face reflected back at me clownishly swollen. It would, it would be the last time I saw that face for a long while. Prescription for Moran, I said when I finally reached the pharmacy counter. Out of the corner of my left eye, I thought I saw someone counting meds into pill bottles jerk her head up. And I noticed the way the pharmacy associate studied me a second as if sizing me up. A tiny flare of fear went off in my chest, but I ignored it, watching as the associate went and spoke to the woman in the back. He returned and carefully explained to me that the prescription wasn't ready yet. Nodding, I stepped aside to the cramped waiting area to my right. There were two white chairs, a blood pressure machine, and a book of crossword puzzles on the seat of one chair, a hair magazine, and a recent Us Weekly on the other. A blonde-haired woman in a business suit, probably a lawyer, 
was barking into her phone with dramatically folded, folded arms and sighs while staring at a sheaf of shelf of feminine hygiene products. In one of the seats, a young man of about 20 in a gray hooded sweat jacket, a pair of jeans that hadn't been washed in some time, Chuck Taylor's and bunched dirty white socks, was exhibiting a variety of hand tremors and furious nail biting. Next to him was a pasty-faced middle-aged bureaucrat in a drab brown suit and black rimmed glasses. A hard shell briefcase was perched on his lap. <laughs> he was holding the left side of his face as if in severe pain, but he remained stoic throughout. I could feel for the guy. Thank you, Jim. Okay, next we have Judith Sarah Gilt. Judith is reading from her memoir. Fans, fans. Her memoir slash creative nonfiction, Snow on Pluto. And the excerpt she is reading is from Losing Buddha, but I think Jim Ringel found him. (laughs) Judith believes it's no longer... Oh, she wanted me to tell you that what she had to say wasn't funny. But here's what she did have to say. Judith believes it's no longer correct to write memoir and take for granted there's an agreement between you and the reader that assumes you are only recreating the essence of an event when you recreate a scene from 30 years ago. Judith. In other words, I have no sense of humor. That's what that really means. So this is a, an excerpt from a chapter called Losing Buddha. And I get really dry, so I don't know where to put the water. So how come there's not a table here? I'm kidding. I have no sense of humor. Okay, there we go. Since she had her own car, Kay and I occasionally ventured to movie theaters downtown. There, Denver seemed a darker dimension and universe away from our southeast suburb. The added drama was worth the trip, even though the bathrooms usually freaked me out. It's gross in here, I whispered through the stall door while she peed. I walked to the dull white sink and wondered if girls downtown ever washed their hands. I found something, she said. She ran water over her hands, a piece of bright yellow paper stuffed under her arm. Did you pick that up in the stall? Look at this. The wrinkled yellow paper made amazing promises in bold black type. Do you seek peace of mind, school, or financial success? Love, beauty, these can be yours. All ages, religious affiliations, welcome. Let Buddha show the way. I forgot about its germy origins. At the bottom, a date and directions were printed by hand in blue ballpoint. It proved a powerful magnet to 16-year-old Jewish girls. <laughs> we cruised an hour east into Aurora, the wrinkled yellow paper in my lap. Passing a row of small, square houses, we searched for something Buddhist-looking. <laughs> the house looked just like the others. Not very Buddhist from what I know, I said. Hot in my bell-bottoms, I clutched my shoulder bag. Oh, you know something about Buddhism. 
Kay grinned and pressed the doorbell. An Asian man in white shirt sleeves appeared and smiled. His eyes vanished. He seemed happy we'd come. We're here about the prayer meeting, Kay said. He led us through an ordinary living room, past a sofa and chair covered in matching fabric so faded and worn it was impossible to tell their original colors. My breathing came fast. Where were the thick rugs and statues of round-bellied men? I couldn't separate hype from reality. I'd never experienced anything Buddhist. We followed down a short flight of stairs. Murmurings and syrupy incense grew thicker with each step, and I concentrated my focus on Kay's blonde head. Wait here a few minutes. The man's voice disappeared into a small room ahead. A deep hum swarmed like thousands of invisible insects. The dimly lit, unfurnished room was crowded with backs of people kneeling, all swaying slightly back and forth. Suddenly a chime overpowered everything, and then silence. I held my breath. I was scared to look at Kay. If our eyes met, we'd burst into uncontrolled giggling, but I had to know what she was thinking. Glancing beside me, I saw her straight blonde hair to her waist. Following it up, I saw a large section tightly wrapped around two fingers. She stared straight ahead. Would all newcomers please come to the front to begin our meeting? It was the grinning man. People stood, filed past, and up the stairs. Most were Asian, of various ages. I expect to see more of us there. Jewish, maybe Christian, teenagers, craving easy answers. <laughs> this group's specialty. I still gripped the paper and stuffed it into my shoulder bag. We sat on thin carpet with the other newcomers who'd stepped from the crowd and listened to the man with a smile. In a lilting voice, laced with an Asian accent, he explained the chant, some kind of prayer beads, and the promise of rewards. Yes, rewards. The tangible kind. Anything we wanted from A-plus test grades to losing weight or cash. And all for constant and correct chanting. No need to believe in anything. We were handed our own strings of beads, as well as palm-sized prayer books containing the mantra. The tan leather cover felt smooth and cool. I exhaled, and my shoulders dropped. He demonstrated handling the beads skillfully. After somehow twisting them around some fingers of both hands, he gently but steadily moved them back and forth, rubbing the beads together while pronouncing the words. The effect was one continuous musical event. I have no memory of how any of this was really done. But we practiced in the car. I opened the leather book in my lap and worked the strings of beads while Kay drove. Nam yoho renge kyo. Nam yoho renge kyo. Nam yoho renge kyo. I loved producing the rhythm, my voice blending with the beads, melodious strokes, and Kay's voice. The odd syllables began to feel comfortable in my mouth. The beads somehow slid smoothly between my fingers. While chanting, I mulled over my desires. The homework due that week? How to avoid my father? It seems strange I never considered curing my mother. By then, her severe mood swings were such a permanent part of my landscape, I don't believe it even occurred to me to try. Soon, our sounds blurred into a hum like in the little house, and I matched the others. I fit. Judith, you stole my notes. You have my notes. Oh, I stole your notes? 
Yes. <laughs> and you don't want me just to say what's on my mind. I went to a lot of crazy places at 16, but prayer meetings, not one of them. Okay. All right, next up we have Rebecca Snow. She's reading poems. She enjoys writing both fiction and poetry. They called her a mutant in grad school for not being able to choose between the two. She is publishing her first novel with a shout of thanks to Court McNeil. All of her Lighthouse instructors, fellow students, and the seven. Rebecca. Okay, these first two I just wrote this week for Jake Adam York's intensive chapbook class, so they're very fresh. <laughs> okay. Um, the tree of life pokes up through the hole in your boot. Deep in Missoula winter, Four writing program outcasts walk to the poetry reading. Paul getting his PhD in math. You, Tim, and I, the three who avoid writing Western realism. <laughs> the tree of life has beheaded and cloned itself. Telephone poles bearing the shame of language up and down the snow-covered streets. Your bare big toe sticks out of the hole in your boot and the hole in your sock your toenail catching flakes like a long, white, outstretched tongue. Paul, six foot five in jazz baritone, points to your toe and laughs so loud the air turns warm. Tim says, Richard, it's snowing. We need to get you some new shoes. And I'm writing this little series on Richard, who was my best friend who died in 2003. So, All right. Um, you finished our book, I gave up on, and died. When you sat for hours giving our fairy tale novel a final proof and trying to organize your dissertation on Blake, did the blood clot know as soon as you stood up it would rise free from your leg all the way to your lung? Pulmonary embolism the big stack of papers you held scattered like white, flapping hills as you tried to leave your usual good tip at the Atlas Grill, the staff ready every mid-morning with your pitcher of iced tea. Did you hit the restaurant floor before all the pages floated down, our life fluttering and falling around you, the pain in your lung intense as you stood your final time? The staff said you looked dizzy, tried to hold yourself up, your hand gripping your table's last edge. Did you know you were dying? Did you think of me? Did you think of me? Tiger lamb burning dim. And for the purposes of this reading, I had to choose between poetry and fiction. So I'm calling this a prose poem. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> It's from a much larger, larger unnamed work. But um, I'm titling it Sleeping on the Floor at the Inn. Okay. Ingrid woke to the muffled sound of a violin playing. The bow barely touched the strings in short, hesitating strokes. She sat up and saw the bed's quilt completely covering Papa crouched beneath it. A song had come to him. 
maybe in a dream. From the narrow window on the other side of the bed, light came dimly like the tune. Papa shape, a still dead thing, except for the unseen fingers finding the song and the unseen arm drawing the bow. Ingrid remained sitting and watched, imagining what it would be like to live under a blanket of darkness, always. She thought she could feel a little how it was, being blind, not able to know the way things looked, everything beyond reach. Though hearing was Papa's way to see and the other senses touch, his blindness seemed like a sort of smothering to Ingrid for the first time, like deafness must be for someone who remembered being able to hear. And though his stealth under the quilt may be adventurous, a child catching tadpoles in a stream, the child must find them in the dark. Thanks. Thank you, Rebecca, and congratulations. Okay, next up we have Katie Peterson. Katie is reading from her work entitled Skraelig, which is YA fantasy adventure. The story is set in an imaginary North America at the end of the Ice Age. Vikings have colonized the Northeast and are interact and interact with native cultures. Skraelig is a 14-year-old biracial girl whose mother and grandmother have recently died. Katie has been a street performer in Japan, a Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey clown, and now teaches math and Latin to gifted kids at the Logan School. I just have to say, there are so many cool stories in this room. I am totally blown away. Uh, this is my first shot at a at a novel, and each chapter has a poem prologue that's the grandmother's story, and then the chapter, which is Skraelig's story. So this is the prologue for chapter one. On the back of the wind's brother, she dropped her heart's light. Leaning over the tower walls, she released her soul's hope uncurling her grasp finger by finger. The fall, the babe's serene face receding hung in space, the moment lengthened, stretched, the better to be woven into every fiber of memory. One eternal instant of undetermined fate, then a sudden rush of wing and wind, the babe's arms flew out, startled, Aksua caught the tumbling bundle and buried her in the deep safety of his bosom and was borne up on the feathered back. The taloned hunter's great wings carved swaths of void till only a speck wavered in the uncertain distance. She stared after them. Water spilled over from her eyes, and she could draw breath again. Behind her, she heard the climbing steps of terror's return, and deprived of his evil gluttony, he made her to be no more. Chapter One. <clears throat> Skraelig looked at her mother's grave with some relief. A cold morning rain misted down from low skittering clouds blown in off the ocean's back. The world was bathed in gray, 
All the clan gathered round the grave site looked damp but suitably reverent. Saemund intoned intercessions in a deep and sober voice. His dark robe was meant to convey a sense of solemn mystery. But the mist beating up on his grizzled head and dripping down his beard spoiled the effect somewhat, making him look sodden and vaguely ridiculous. Despite the solemnity of the moment, all Scraley could think of was her feet. Water seeped in from worn spots in the bottom of her boots. The boots were the only fancy dress that Skraelig owned, handed down from sister to sister before her. They were seldom called for, and no one ever quite got around to their repair. The minute she had stepped out onto the damp road, she'd felt the icy puddle water rush in and wick up her stockings. Now standing still, she could feel the cold damp creeping up past her knees. The boots pinched, too, just at the toe, where the stitched leather came to a stylish point. She tried to focus respectfully on Salmon's well-modulated words, but her feet... Her toes were entirely numb and beginning to cramp with a cold ache. She felt that if she should be obliged to endure one more moment of well-mannered, mournful stiffness, her body would turn in on itself in physical rebellion. Skraelig let her gaze drift to distract herself from discomfort. She looked over to the mound of her grandmother's grave, just next to her mother's. On her deathbed, Oma had given Skraelig the medallion that she now wore in secret under her shift. Skraelig could feel the warm weight of it on her skin. She kept it tucked away, since she had feared that Saemund would not approve the sight of foreign gold at her mother's funeral. Saemund already found every cause he could to point out Skraelig's off-color eye and how her dark coloring favored Oma Svea's appearance. There was no reason to make trouble for herself by wearing strange ornaments. Oma Svea had passed on just the year before, outliving all but her youngest child. Skraelig's mother had been long-lived by normal standards, but Oma Svea had been older than any living could tell. At the time of her death, the village wags had begun to whisper it was fairy blood that kept her living so long past when any otherwise decent person would have died. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Okay, and our last reader for this evening is Lisa Wagner. Lisa is reading the opening monologue from a play titled The Mrs. Greenland Pageant. The Mrs. Greenland Pageant takes place in the fictitious town of Greenland, Colorado, a cross between Mayberry and Greeley, minus the smell. I'll be reading the opening monologue. Um, the character's name is June Cleveland. Okay. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is June Cleveland, and I am competing for the honor of being crowned Mrs. Greenland, Colorado. A little bit about me. I was born in this town and remained here until I was ripped from my roots at eight years of age when my selfish, hippie mother took me away <laughs> after divorcing my father because she couldn't stand the smell of wheat waving in the wind. <laughs> but I survived San Francisco, New York City, and Boulder. <laughs> knowing one day I would return to Greenland, Colorado, the moment I got my high school diploma, and I've been in this wonderful place ever since. I've accomplished everything a proper woman should. 
I got married when I was 19. I became a kindergarten teacher at age 22. And all the beautiful children who've entered my classroom have learned not only their ABCs, but also the necessity of keeping their toenails clean. Ladies and gentlemen, I personify the ideal wife and potential mother. I dare anyone in this audience to find an inch of carpet in my house that is not vacuumed daily. (laughs) Plus, I fix all of my husband's meals wearing sensible heels, and I keep our house spotless. I don't have any children yet. My husband has a few problems with his swimmers. I am still 39 years young and my eggs are in their prime. I will not turn 40, which is the age when women suddenly lose all their viable eggs until the day after this pageant. But by then, Jim and I will have overcome his minor shortcomings and I will be pregnant. (laughs) You may be asking yourself, how will June get pregnant tonight if Jim has fertility issues? Ladies and gentlemen, the solution is this beauty pageant. Take my current casual wear outfit, for example. A woman of refinement who needs to get pregnant ASAP cannot afford to ignore the potential attractiveness of a casual outfit. Sometimes, subtle changes to an outfit can mean the difference between a man's willingness to take a fertility supplement (laughs) followed by a night of procreation... And a silent dinner, leaving both, leading both parties to sleep in, in separate bedrooms. <laughs> the outfit I am wearing is a classic combination, a crisp button-down shirt, a pleated skirt, and sensible but pretty heels. What many of you ladies out there don't know is that this outfit can easily be updated for fertility emergencies. <laughs> For instance, it is perfectly acceptable for a woman who leaves one button open on her shirt to increase the number of buttons to two, like this. And a skirt that usually falls an inch below the knee can easily be raised to a half inch above the knee, like this. Although these changes are not recognizable to the husband's conscious mind... (laughs) They will trigger his desire for... Procreation. (laughs) And the result of these subtle changes will be a husband who is suddenly willing to embrace fertility assistance for the reward of marital bedtime activity and two future children. I have already set up a nursery in my home because I will give birth to two above average children (laughs) who have both Jim's sweet nature and my down to earth world views. I am committed to achieving my dreams no matter what it takes. Ladies and gentlemen, I am the June Cleaver of today. A woman who will become a mother regardless of the storms brewing around her. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. And thank you especially to the readers tonight. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop 
and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.